Welcome to Marilyn Lightstone Reads Vanity Fair, William Thackeray's deliciously satirical take on a money-mad society set against the backdrop of the Napoleonic Wars. We're delighted you're back for another novel in our podcast series, Marilyn Lightstone Reads. If this is your first time with us, you can find all the other novels in our series plus new episodes at classicalfm.ca or through your favorite podcast app. Now, let's turn to Marilyn as she reads William Thackeray's Vanity Fair. Chapter 25 In which all the principal personages think fit to leave Brighton. At the ship inn, Dobbin assumed a jovial manner. He was trying to hide his private feelings, first upon seeing Mrs. George Osborne a wife, and secondly to mask his apprehension about the effect his dismal news would certainly have upon her. "'It is my opinion, George,' he said, "'that Napoleon will be upon us before three weeks are over, and will give the Duke such a dance as shall make the Peninsula War appear mere child's play.' "'But you need not say that to Mrs. Osborne. "'Our business in Belgium may turn out to be a mere military occupation with no fighting. "'Many people think so, and Brussels is full of fine people of fashion.' "'So it was agreed to represent matters in this harmless light to Amelia. "'The hypocritical Dobbin saluted Mrs. George Osborne quite gaily.' tried to pay her one or two clumsy compliments on her new position as a bride, and then began talking about Brighton and the sea air and the beauties of the road and the merits of the lightning coat, all in a manner quite incomprehensible to Amelia and very amusing to Rebecca, who was watching the captain, as indeed she watched everyone. Little Amelia, it must be owned, had rather a low opinion of Captain Dobbin. He was very plain and exceedingly awkward and ungainly. She liked him for his attachment to her husband, and she thought George was most generous in making friends with his brother officer. George, to do him justice, always spoke highly of his friend's good qualities. In her little day of triumph, and not knowing him intimately yet, she made light of honest William and he knew her opinion of him quite well, and acquiesced very humbly. A time came when she knew him better, and changed her notions, but that was still distant. As for Rebecca, within two hours she understood his secret perfectly. She did not like him, and feared him privately, nor did he have much liking for her. He was so honest that her arts did not affect him, and he shrank from her with instinctive repulsion. And, as she was not above jealousy, she disliked him the more for his adoration of Amelia. Nevertheless, she was outwardly very respectful and cordial towards him. She vowed she would always love him. She remembered him quite well on the Vauxhall night, as she told Amelia archly, and she made a little fun of him when the two ladies went to dress for dinner. Rodden Crawley paid scarcely any attention to Dobbin. Joss patronized him with much dignity. When George and Dobbin were alone, Dobbin gave him the letter which he had been charged by Mr. Osborne to deliver to his son. "'It's not in my father's handwriting,' said George, looking rather alarmed. 
nor was it. The letter was from Mr. Osborne's lawyer, and went thus. Bedford Row, May 7th, 1815. Sir, I am commissioned by Mr. Osborne to inform you that he abides by his determination that in consequence of the marriage which you have been pleased to contract, he ceases to consider you henceforth as a member of his family. This determination is final and irrevocable. Although the monies expended upon you and the bills which you have drawn upon him far exceed the sum to which you are entitled— being the third part of the fortune of your mother, the late Mrs. Osborne, yet I am instructed by Mr. Osborne to say that the sum of two thousand pounds, being your one-third share of the sum of six thousand pounds, shall be paid over to yourself or your agents by your obedient servant, S. Higgs. P.S. Mr. Osborne desires me to say that he declines to receive any communications from you on this or any other subject. A pretty way you have managed the affair, said George, looking savagely at Dobbin. Look here, a beggar because of my damned sentimentality? Why couldn't we have waited, hmm? A cannonball might have done for me in the war and may still, and how will Emmy be bettered by being left a beggar's widow?' It was all your doing. You were never easy until you had got me married and ruined. What the deuce am I to do with two thousand pounds? I've lost a hundred and forty to Crawley since I've been here. A pretty manager of a man's matters you are. There's no denying that the position is a hard one, Dobbin replied, after reading the letter. As you say, it is partly of my making. There are some men who wouldn't mind changing with you, he added with a bitter smile. How many captains have two thousand pounds, think you? You must live on your pay till your father relents, and if you die, you leave your wife a hundred a year. Do you suppose a man of my habits can live on his pay and a hundred a year? George cried out in great anger. You're a fool to talk so, Dobbin. How the deuce am I to keep up my position in the world upon such a pitiful amount? I wasn't brought up on porridge or on potatoes like old O'Dowd. Do you expect my wife to take in soldiers' washing, or ride after the regiment in a baggage wagon? Well, well, said Dobbin, still good-naturedly, we'll get her a better conveyance. Be quiet whilst the tempest lasts, George. It won't be for long. Let your name be mentioned in the Gazette, and the old father will relent. Mentioned in the Gazette, George answered, and in what part of it? Among the killed and wounded, very likely. "'It'll be time enough to cry out when we are hurt,' Dobbin said. "'And if anything happens, you know, George, I have got a little, "'and I am not a marrying man, "'and I shall not forget my godson in my will,' he added with a smile. "'The dispute ended, with the former declaring he could not be angry with Dobbin long, "'and forgiving him very generously after abusing him without cause.' "'I say, Becky,' cried Rawdon Crawley, when they were dressing for dinner. "'What?' said Becky, looking over her shoulder in the mirror. She had put on a neat white frock, and with bare shoulders and a little necklace she looked the image of youthful innocence. "'I say, what'll Mrs. O do when George goes out with the regiment, hmm?' 
Crawley said, performing a duet on his head with two huge hairbrushes and looking with admiration on his pretty little wife. I suppose she'll cry her eyes out, Becky answered. He's been whimpering already at the very notion. You don't care, I suppose, Rodden said, half angry at his wife's lack of feeling. Oh, you wretch! Don't you know that I intend to go with you? Becky replied. Besides, you're different. You go as General Tufto's aide-de-camp. We don't belong to the line. Her husband, enchanted, stooped down and kissed her. Rodden, dear, don't you think you'd better get that money from Cupid before he goes? Becky continued. She called George Osborne Cupid. She had flattered him about his good looks a score of times, watching him play cards in the evening. She had called him a horrid, dissipated wretch, and threatened to tell Emmy of his naughty, extravagant habits. She brought his cigar and lit it for him, having practiced the maneuver in former days upon Rawdon Crawley. George thought her gay, arch, and delightful— in their drives and dinners, Becky quite outshone poor Emmy, who remained very mute and timid while Mrs. Crawley and her husband rattled away together. Emmy's mind somehow misgave her about her friend. Rebecca's wit, spirits, and accomplishments troubled her. They were only a week married, and here was George already bored and eager for other society. She trembled for the future. How shall I be a companion for him, she thought, so clever and so brilliant, and I so foolish. How noble it was of him to give up everything and marry me. Oh, I ought to have refused him. I ought to have stayed at home and taken care of poor papa. And her neglect of her parents made her blush with humiliation. Oh, thought she. I have been very wicked and selfish in forcing George to marry me. I'm not worthy of him. He would have been happy without me. And yet, and yet I tried. I tried to give him up. It is hard when, before seven days of marriage are over, such thoughts as these force themselves on a little bride's mind. But so it was and the night before Dobbin arrived, on a fine moonlit night of May, so warm and balmy that the windows were flung open to the balcony, from which George and Mrs. Crawley were gazing upon the calm ocean spread shining before them, while Rawdon and Joss were playing backgammon within. Amelia, couched in a great chair, quite neglected, and watching both these parties, felt a bitter despair and remorse. God, what a fine night and how bright the moon is, George said with a puff of his cigar. Oh, how delicious cigars smell in the open air. Oh, I adore them. Who'd think the moon was 236,847 miles off? <laughs> Becky added, gazing at that orb with a smile. Isn't it clever of me to remember that? We learned it at Miss Pinkerton's. Oh, how calm the sea is and how clear everything. I declare I can almost see the coast of France. Do you know what I intend to do one morning? She went on. 
I find I can swim beautifully, and some day, when my aunt Crawley's companion, old Briggs, you know, goes out to bathe on her bathing machine, I shall dive under her awning and insist on a reconciliation in the water. <laughs> Isn't that a stratagem? <laughs> George burst out laughing. What's the row there, you two? Rawdon shouted out. Amelia retired to her room to whimper in private. Our history is destined in this chapter to go backwards and forwards in a very irresolute manner, and having conducted our story tomorrow presently, we shall immediately again step back to yesterday. Although all the little incidents must be heard, yet they will be put off when the great events make their appearance, and surely the ordering of the guards to Belgium, and the mustering of the allied armies there under the Duke of Wellington, such a dignified circumstance excuses any little trifling disorder. We have now got our various characters up into their dressing rooms before dinner on the day of Dobbin's arrival. George was too humane, or too much occupied with the tie of his neckcloth, to tell Amelia all the news which his comrade had brought from London. He came into her room, however, with the attorney's letter, and so solemn an air that his wife, running up to him, besought her dearest George to tell her everything. He was ordered abroad. There would be a battle next week. She knew there would. Dearest George, with a melancholy shake of the head, said, No, Emmy, I have had bad news from my father. Ah, he refuses any communication with me. He has flung us off and leaves us to poverty. I can rough it well enough, but, but you, my dear, how will you bear it? He handed her the letter. Amelia listened with tender alarm, and read the letter which George gave her with such a pompous, martyr-like air. Her face cleared as she read, however. The idea of sharing poverty with the beloved is far from disagreeable to a warm-hearted woman. The notion was actually pleasant to little Amelia. Then, ashamed of feeling happy, she said, "'Oh, George, how your poor heart must bleed "'at the idea of being separated from your papa!' "'It does,' said George, with an agonized face. "'But he can't be angry with you long,' she continued. "'Nobody could. "'He must forgive you, my dearest husband, "'or I shall never forgive myself if he does not.' "'What vexes me, my poor Emmy?' "'It's not my misfortune, but yours,' George said. "'I don't care for a little poverty, and I think without vanity I've talents enough to make my own way.' "'Oh, that you have,' said his wife, who thought that her husband should be made a general instantly. "'But you, my dear girl, how can I bear your being deprived of the comforts you had a right to expect? "'My dearest girl in barracks, the wife of a soldier.' "'Subject to all sorts of annoyance. It makes me miserable.' Emmy took his hand, and with a radiant smile began to warble that stanza from the favorite song, "Wapping Old Stairs, in which the heroine promises her Tom his trousers to mend and his grog, too, to make. "'Besides,' she said, "'isn't two thousand pounds an immense deal of money, George?' 
<laughs> George laughed at her naivete. And when they went down to dinner, Amelia still singing, she was lighter of mind than she had been for some days. Thus, the meal was an exceedingly brisk and merry one. The excitement of the campaign counteracted in George's mind the depression caused by the letter. Dobbin amused the company with accounts of the army in Belgium, where nothing but fits and gaiety were going on. He described Mrs. Major O'Dowd packing her own and her major's wardrobe, and how his best epaulettes had been stowed into a tea canister, whilst her famous yellow turban was locked up in the major's tin hat case, and he wondered what effect it would have at the military halls at Brussels. Brussels, cried Amelia with a sudden shock. Is the regiment ordered away, George? A look of terror came over her face, and she clung to him. "'Don't be afraid, dear,' George said, good-naturedly. "'It is only a twelve-hours passage. "'You shall go, too, Emmy.' "'I intend to go,' said Becky. "'I'm on the staff. "'General Tufto is a great flirt of mine, isn't he, Rodden?' "'Rodden laughed out with his usual roar. "'William Dobbin flushed quite red. "'She can't go,' he said. "'Think of the... of the danger.' He was going to add, but had he not been trying to prove there was none? He became confused and silent. I must and will go, Amelia cried with spirit, and George patted her under the chin and asked if they ever saw such a termagant of a wife and agreed that she should bear him company. We'll have Mrs. O'Dowd to chaperone you, he said. Thus, the bitterness of a parting was juggled away. War and danger might not happen for months, and the respite made timid little Amelia happy, which Dobbin owned was very welcome. To be permitted to see her was now the greatest privilege and hope of his life, and he thought secretly how he would watch and protect her. I wouldn't have let her go if I had been married to her, he thought. But George was the master. Rebecca at length carried Amelia off from the dinner-table and left the gentleman in a highly exhilarated state, drinking and talking very gaily. During the evening, Rawdon got a little note from his wife, which, although he burnt it instantly in the candle, we had the good luck to read first. "'Great news,' Rebecca wrote. "'Mrs. Butte is gone. Get the money from Cupid tonight, and he'll be off tomorrow. R.' So, when the men were adjourning to coffee, Rawdon touched Osborne on the elbow and said gracefully, I say, Osborne, if quite convenient, I'll trouble you for that small trifle. <laughs> it was not quite convenient, but nevertheless, George gave him an installment in banknotes and a bill on his agents for the remaining sum. George, Joss, and Dobbin held a council of war over their cigars, and agreed that they should move back to London in Joss's carriage. So they set off in state the next day. Amelia had risen very early and packed her little trunks with alacrity. A dim, uneasy, jealous feeling about Rebecca filled her mind, although they kissed each other tenderly at parting. Besides these characters, coming and going, we must remember that there were other old friends of ours at Brighton, Miss Crawley and her attendants, 
Although Rebecca and her husband were a stone's throw from her lodgings, the old lady's door remained pitilessly closed to them. Mrs. Bute Crawley took care that her beloved Matilda should not be agitated by meeting her nephew. When the spinster took her drive, the faithful Mrs. Bute sat beside her in the carriage. When Miss Crawley took the air in a sedan chair, Mrs. Bute marched on one side, with honest Briggs on the other. And if they met Rawdon and his wife, they passed him by with such a frigid indifference that Rawdon began to despair. Oh, we might as well be in London as here, he said, downcast. A comfortable inn in Brighton is better than a sponging house in Chancery Lane, his wife answered cheerfully. Think of those two sheriff's men who watched our lodging for a week. Mr. Joss and Captain Cupid are very stupid companions, but better ones than those men, my love. And she pointed out to her husband the great advantage of meeting Joss and Osborne, who had brought a most timely supply of ready money. It will be hardly enough to pay the inn bill, grumbled the guardsman. Why need we pay it? said the lady. Through Rawdon's valet, who was instructed to treat Miss Crawley's coachman to drink whenever they met, old Miss Crawley's movements were well known by our young couple, and Rebecca luckily thought of being unwell, and of calling the same doctor who treated the spinster, so that their information was complete. Nor was kind Miss Briggs their enemy, though forced to adopt a hostile attitude. Indeed, Briggs and Mrs. Firkin and the whole of Miss Crawley's household groaned under the tyranny of the triumphant Mrs. Bute. That good but imperious woman pushed her advantages too far. She had brought the invalid to such a helpless state that the poor soul yielded entirely to her sister-in-law and did not dare to complain. Mrs. Bute measured out the wine which Miss Crawley was allowed to take, greatly to the annoyance of Firkin and the butler, who were deprived of control over even the sherry bottle. Night, noon, and morning, Mrs. Bute made her patients swallow abominable medicines. She prescribed the drive in the carriage or the ride in the chair, and ground down the old lady as only a managing moral woman can. If ever the patient faintly resisted and pleaded for a bit more dinner or a drop less medicine, her nurse threatened her with instant death, and Miss Crawley gave in. She's no spirit left in her, Firkin remarked to Briggs. She ain't called me a fool these three weeks. Finally, Mrs. Bute decided to dismiss Firkin. Mr. Bowles, the butler, and Briggs herself, and to send for her daughters from the rectory in readiness to remove the dear invalid to Queen's Crawley, when an accident happened which called her away from these duties. The Reverend Bute Crawley, her husband, riding home one night, fell and broke his collarbone. Fever set in, and Mrs. Bute was forced to leave for Hampshire. She promised to return as soon as Bute was better, and departed, leaving the strongest commands with the household. As soon as she got into the Southampton coach, there was such a jubilee and sense of relief in all of Miss Crawley's house as had not been felt for many a week. 
Miss Crowley left off her afternoon dose of medicine. Bowles opened a bottle of sherry for himself and Mrs. Firkin. That night, Miss Crowley and Miss Briggs indulged in a game of piquet instead of a sermon. Very early in the morning, twice or thrice a week, Miss Briggs used to hire a bathing machine and disport in the water in a flannel gown. Rebecca, as we have seen, knew this, and though she did not actually dive under her as she had threatened, she determined to attack Briggs as she came away from her bath. So, getting up early the next morning, Becky was there just as Briggs stepped out of the little caravan onto the shingles. Rebecca wore a kind, tender smile on her face and was holding out her pretty white hand as Briggs emerged from the box. What could Briggs do but accept the greeting? Mrs. Crawley, she said. Mrs. Crawley seized her hand, pressed it to her heart, and with a sudden impulse flung her arms around Briggs, kissing her affectionately. Oh, dear, dear friend, she said, and Miss Briggs began to melt. Rebecca found no difficulty in engaging her in long conversation. Everything that had passed since Becky's sudden departure was discussed and described. All Miss Crawley's symptoms and the details of her treatment were narrated with that fullness which women delight in. Do ladies ever tire of talking about their illnesses and doctors? Briggs did not, nor did Rebecca tire of listening. She was thankful that the dear, kind Briggs had been permitted to remain with her benefactress through her illness. Though she, Rebecca, had seemed to act undutifully by leaving Miss Crawley, yet was not her fault a natural one. Could she help but give her hand to the man who had won her heart? The sentimental Briggs turned her eyes up to heaven at this appeal and heaved a sympathetic sigh. Can I ever forget her who so befriended me? No, though she has cast me off said Becky. I would devote my life to Miss Crawley. I love and admire her beyond any woman in the world, and I love all those who are faithful to her. I would never have treated Miss Crawley's faithful friends as that odious, designing Mrs. Bute had done. Rawdon has said a hundred times, with tears in his eyes, that he blessed heaven for sending his dearest auntie two such admirable nurses as Firkin and Miss Briggs. Should the horrible Mrs. Bute succeed, as Becky feared, she went on, in banishing everybody and leaving poor Miss Crawley a victim to the harpies at the rectory, Briggs should remember that Becky's humble home was always open to receive her. Oh, dear friend, Becky exclaimed, not all women are Butte Crawleys, though I should not complain of her, for do I not owe my dearest Rawdon to her? And she told Briggs all Mrs. Butte's conduct at Queen's Crawley, how she encouraged her attachment by a thousand artifices, so that two innocent people had fallen into her snares and had loved and married and been ruined through her schemes. It was all very true. Briggs saw it clearly. Mrs. Butte had made the match between Rawdon and Rebecca. 
Yet Mrs. Briggs feared that Miss Crowley's affections were hopelessly estranged from them, and that the old lady would never forgive her nephew. Rebecca privately felt that Miss Crowley might still relent in future. Even now, there was only that sickly pit Crowley between Rawdon and the baronetcy. After an hour's chat with Miss Briggs, Rebecca left, quite sure that the conversation would be reported to Miss Crowley. She returned to her inn, where a farewell breakfast was taking place. Rebecca took a tender, sisterly leave of Amelia, and having hung on her friend's neck as if they were parting forever, and waved her handkerchief, which was quite dry, as the carriage drove off, she came back to the breakfast table with a good appetite. While she was munching prawns, she explained to Rawdon what had occurred between herself and Briggs. Her hopes were high. She made her husband share them. She generally succeeded in making her husband share her opinions. Now, sit down at the writing table and pen a pretty little letter to Miss Crawley in which you say that you are a good boy and that sort of thing. So Rawdon sat down and wrote, My dear aunt, and then chewed the end of his pen and looked at his wife. She could not help but laugh at his rueful face and began to dictate a letter. Before quitting the country and commencing a campaign, which very possibly may be fatal— What? said Rodden, rather surprised. Which may very possibly be fatal, I have come hither— Why not say come here, Becky? I have come hither— Rebecca insisted, to say farewell to my dearest and earliest friend. I beseech you before I go, once more to let me press the hand from which I have received nothing but kindnesses all my life. Period. Kindnesses all my life echoed Rawdon, scratching down the words. I ask only that we should not part in anger. I have the pride of my family on some points, though not all. I married a painter's daughter, and am not ashamed of the union. No, run me through if I am, Rawdon cried. You old booby, Rebecca said, pinching his ear and looking over his work. Beseech is not spelt with an A, and earliest is. So he altered these words, bowing to her superior knowledge. I thought that you were aware of my attachment, Rebecca continued. I knew that Mrs. Bute Crawley encouraged it, period. But I make no reproaches. Period. I am content to abide by what I have done. Period. Leave your property, dear aunt, as you wish, and I shall never complain. I love you for yourself, comma, and not for money's sake. Period. I want to be reconciled to you ere I leave England. Let me, let me see you before I go. Period. A few weeks hence, it may be too late, comma, and I cannot bear to quit the country without a kind word of farewell from you. Period. 
"'She won't recognize my style in that,' said Becky, "'and this authentic missive was sent to Miss Briggs.' "'Old Miss Crawley laughed when Briggs handed it over. Ah, "'We may read it now, Mrs. Boot is away,' she said. "'Read it to me, Briggs.' "'When Mrs. Briggs had read the letter out, much affected, "'her patroness laughed more. <laughs> "'Don't you see, you goose?' she said. "'That Rod never wrote a word of it.' All his letters are full of bad spelling and bad grammar. It is that little serpent of a governess who rules him, Miss Crawley thought. They all want me dead and are hankering for my money. I don't mind seeing Rawdon, she added after a pause. I had just as soon shake hands with him as not, but I decline to receive Mrs. Rawdon. Miss Briggs had to be content with this, and thought that the best method of bringing the old lady and her nephew together was for Rawdon to be waiting on the cliff when Miss Crawley went out in her sedan chair. There they met. Miss Crawley held out a couple of fingers to him, smiling. Rawdon turned scarlet and wrung Briggs' hand, so great was his rapture. Perhaps he was touched by the change which the illness of the last weeks had wrought in his aunt. "'The old girl has always been good to me,' he said to his wife afterwards. "'And I felt, you know, rather queer and that sort of thing. I walked beside her chair to her door, and I, I wanted to go in, only—' "'You didn't go in, Rodden. "'You didn't go in, Rodden!' screamed his wife. "'No, my dear, I was afraid to.' "'You fool! You ought to have gone in and never come out again,' Rebecca said. "'Don't call me names,' said the big guardsman sulkily. "'Perhaps I was a fool, Becky, but you shouldn't say so.' "'Well, dearest, tomorrow you must go and see her, whether she asks you or no,' Rebecca said, trying to soothe him. He replied that he would do as he liked and would thank her to keep a civil tongue in her head. "'Then?' The wounded husband went away sulkily and passed the morning at the billiard room, but soon he was compelled to give in and admit, as usual, to his wife's superior foresight when a letter arrived. Miss Crawley had mused upon the meeting a considerable time. "'Rawdon is getting very old and fat, Briggs.' she said to her companion. His nose has become red, and he is exceedingly coarse in appearance. His marriage to that woman has hopelessly vulgarized him. Mrs. Butte always said they drank together. He smelt of gin abominably. I noticed it, didn't you? In vain, Briggs said that Mrs. Butte spoke ill of everybody and was a, an artful, designing woman. Well, yes, so she is, but I am certain that his wife has made Rawdon drink. He was very much affected at seeing you, ma'am, the companion said, and when you remember he is going to the field of danger. How much money has he promised you, Briggs? The old spinster cried out in a nervous rage. Oh, there, now, of course, you begin to cry. I hate things. Stop! Sit down and blow your nose, and write a letter to Captain Crawley. Poor Briggs went obediently to the writing desk. Begin, dear sir, and say you are desired by Miss Crawley. 
No, by Miss Crawley's medical man, by Mr. Creamer, to state that my health is so delicate that all strong emotions would be dangerous, and that I must decline any family interviews whatever, and thank him for coming to Brighton and so forth, and beg him not to stay any longer on my account. You may add that I wish him a bon voyage, and that if he calls upon my lawyers in Gray's Inn Square, he will find there something for him. That will do. That will make him leave Brighton. Briggs penned this with satisfaction. To seize upon me the very day after Mrs. Bute was gone, the old lady went on. It was indecent. Briggs, my dear, write to Mrs. Bute Crawley and say she needn't come back. No, she shan't. I won't be a slave in my own house, and I won't be starved and choked with poison. They'll want to kill me all. And the lonely old woman burst into hysterical tears. The last scene of her dismal Vanity Fair comedy was fast approaching. The tawdry lamps were going out one by one, and the dark curtain was almost ready to descend. This letter, referring Rawdon to Miss Crawley's lawyer, consoled the dragoon and his wife somewhat, and it had the desired effect by making Rawdon very eager to get to London. Out of Joss's and George Osborne's losings, he paid his bill at the inn. The landlord does not know to this day how doubtfully his account once stood. Ah, I should have liked to see the old girl before we went. Rodden said. She looks so altered. I'm sure she can't last long. <sighs> I wonder what sort of a check I shall have. It can't be less than two hundred, eh, Becky? Because of the repeated visits of the sheriff's men, Rodden and his wife did not go back to their former lodgings in London, but stayed at an inn. Early the next morning, Rebecca went to old Mrs. Sedley's house at Fulham to look for her dear friend Amelia and her Brighton friends, who were going off to Chatham to travel to Belgium with the regiment. But kind old Mrs. Sedley was alone and tearful. Returning from this visit, Rebecca found her husband, who had been off to Gray's Inn and had come back furious. "'By Jove, Becky!' said he. He's only given me twenty pounds. Becky burst out laughing. Thanks for listening to Marilyn Lightstone Reads Vanity Fair. This episode was produced by Justin Eacock, executive producer Moses Nimer. This is the latest book in our podcast series, Marilyn Lightstone Reads. Other selections include Showboat, Anne of Green Gables, The Age of Innocence, Pride and Prejudice, and The Woman in White. You can also help support this podcast by recommending it to your friends and leaving a five-star review in your preferred podcast store. And while you're there, look for a variety of other quality podcasts proudly presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.